This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Because he withdrew from the world, they called him a man-hater. And because he held aloof from sentimentality, they called him unfeeling. He fled the world because, in the whole range of his loving nature, he found no weapon to oppose it. He withdrew from mankind after he had given them his all and received nothing in return. He dwelt alone because he found no second self. But to the end his heart beat warm for all men, and fatherly affection for his kindred, for the world his all and his heart's blood. He whom you mourn stands from now onward among the great of all ages and violet forever. And should you ever in times to come feel the overpowering might of his creations like an onrushing storm, when your mounting ecstasy overflows in the midst of a generation yet unborn, then remember this hour, and think, we were there when they buried him, and when he died we wept. Now that comes from the eulogy for Ludwig van Beethoven from 1827, written by Franz Grillparzer. And what I'm about to read comes from Jan Swafford's amazing book, uh, Beethoven, Anguish and Triumph, uh, one of the great biographies I've ever read. Uh, it stands up there with uh, a handful of other wonderful books. At the end of his book, uh, Jan Swafford says that the transcendence of self, talking about the transcendence of self in art, he says, we hardly know who Shakespeare was. So much of what we know about Beethoven, we best forget when we come to his art. The limits and the pettiness of humanity held up against the illusion of the limitless in art, were never more pointed as with him. He understood people little and liked them less. Yet he lived and worked and exhausted himself in order to exalt humanity. And Jan Swafford says, Beethoven and Shakespeare, who better to compare? And he says this, he says that uh, so much of what we know about Beethoven 
we best forget when we come to his art. He says this on the last page, on page 936 of his biography, so we can't take him entirely seriously that we shouldn't know about the life, because uh, the life is right there, and it is beautiful to it is beautiful to know if that is the kind of thing that you like to know. Before I get to his deathbed, though, there is this one little story from uh, a few pages before Beethoven is on his deathbed, and this is when he is staying at his uh, staying at his brother's out in the country, and it's talking about him uh, working on his F major string quartet and some of his other late works, and it says. After breakfast, he went, he was out of the house, walking through the fields in his usual style, shouting and singing and waving his arms, conducting the music in his head, and stopping to write in a sketchbook. He returned for lunch and a rest in his room, then went back out until dusk. At one point, his antics in the field scared a team of oxen, which bolted down a hill, followed by their driver, a farm boy. When the boy had gotten his team calmed down and back on the road, Beethoven once again turned up, waving and shouting, and spooked them again. This time the oxen ran all the way home, and when the driver asked who this fool was, he was told it was the famous brother of the landover, landowner. A hell of a brother that is, the boy exclaimed. This was not the only time when Beethoven was mistaken for a tramp or a fool. At one point, he accompanied Johann to a conference with an official. The official's clerk noted the shabbily dressed person standing motionless by the door during the long discussion, then noted the low brows, the low bows the stranger received from the official when the two men left. The clerk who was a music lover, asked his employer who that imbecile was who received such a bow, and he was astounded to learn that it was Beethoven. Now, as I've said here many times, I am uh, extremely moved by the biographies of artists and writers. I'm, I guess I'm moved by the biography of just about anybody, but uh, since the biographies of writers and artists are the easy ones to come upon, those are the ones I've read the most often. And I'm really moved by them. And of course, uh, my weakness on this podcast and elsewhere has been to feel great affection for these, these personalities, these creative people, and to sense in them something, or to sense in myself, only a small hint of a version of the the greatness in these other personalities. I feel attached to them. I feel as if they are almost my friends sometimes. But it is worth uh, saying that it is very easy to be romantic about this kind of thing, but that it's also worth pointing out that uh, if I met Beethoven on the street, or if he met me back in Vienna in the first few decades of the uh, 19th century, uh, 
we might not like each other very much at all. He may not have been a person that I would have gotten along with or that I really would have wanted to hang out with. I think uh, of this even more when we talk about the life of Vincent van Gogh as well. Um, it is very easy to romanticize the life of someone who, like Beethoven, was terribly lonely at the, at the end of it. And it is worth it, is worth it uh, not just to focus on the connection that a lonely person in 2021 might feel towards some great creative personality of the past. It's also worth thinking that they were also lonely. They also had experienced darkness, you might say, and that the creations that they made came out of that darkness. It came out of not the feeling that I have towards Beethoven now, great affection for him, but out of a sense that he felt in his own life of not being loved, not being understood, of being lonely himself. But in any case, as a prologue, this is uh, about 10 or so pages from Jan Swafford's book, and this is Beethoven on his deathbed. At the end, it was, as it is with all such figures, to paraphrase a poet, a great mind and spirit fastened to a dying animal. Few men's journeys to death have been so minutely and painfully chronicled as Beethoven's. His primary physician was Dr. Walruck. His, his primary physician, Dr. Walruck, wrote a report of it over the next few months. He begins with a survey of his patient's deafness, his chronic digestive miseries. He notes that Beethoven slept only four to five hours a night and says, he began to develop a liking for spirituous beverages in order to stimulate his decreasing appetite and to aid his, his stomach weaknesses by excessive use of strong punch and iced drinks. At Gnextorf, he had run around in all weathers, that was when he was scaring off the animals, all to the detriment of his health. Then, as he himself jovially said, he used the devil's own most wretched conveyance, a milk wagon, to carry him home. When Walruck first arrived at Schwarzpanner House, he found Beethoven in frightening shape, lungs inflamed with pneumonia, choking, spitting blood, with shooting pains in his side that kept him from sleeping. Within a week, that crisis passed, and he was briefly out of bed, reading and writing. Then a fit of rage over his treatment by friends and family set off an attack of jaundice and vomiting and diarrhea that had him writhing in pain. His anger now joined his train of enemies. He lay in the big bedroom that held his two pianos, his bed facing the window. His cook and maid servant stayed on the job. Friends and relatives gathered, Brother Johann, Karl Holtz, publishers Diabelli and Haslinger, the violinist Franz Clement. Once again among the inner circle was the scorned Anton Schindler, who, since Karl Holtz was busy getting married, had been returned to his place as Beethoven's lackey-in-chief. Gerard, Stepan von Breuning's son, 
maintained a regular afternoon shift at the bedside as well. Stefan did what he could, but he was himself afflicted with a serious liver disease. There was, at last, a rapprochement between Beethoven and Karl. The conversation books, and these are the books that Beethoven wrote in, because being deaf, um, he would pass these conversation books back and forth between himself and others, uh, having conversations that way. The conversation books show the now 20-year-old helping to keep his uncle and his medical regimens, and giving him enemas as well. After Carl left for his regiment on January 2nd, 1827, he wrote a couple of letters, but never saw his uncle again. In a letter to his lawyer on January 3rd, Beethoven named his nephew Carl his sole heir, and indeed a great deal of uh, the biography after about 1810 or so uh, deals with Beethoven's uh, failed attempts, you might say, at being a proper father or caretaker for his, uh, for his nephew Carl. It's really quite sad. Out of the blue, in the middle of December, however, in December of 1826, arrived the 40-volume set of Handel's works, sent him by British admirer Johann Stumpf who had been searching for the volumes for years. Beethoven was overjoyed. He pointed out to Gerhardt the newly arrived stack of books and said, I received these as a gift today. They have given me great joy with this, for Handel is the greatest, the ablest composer. I can still learn from him. And that is one of my favorite stories about anybody. Uh, this man dying from the illnesses that I just read about, uh, deaf, and uh, finding immense joy at these, uh, how many volumes? Um, the 40 volume set of Handel's works and just sitting there in bed, able to hear this music in his head and receiving great joy from it. Uh, Beethoven wrote Stumpf a long letter of thanks, also asking him to propose to the Philharmonic Society that it give a concert for his benefit. Several physicians were brought in for consultation, chief among them Dr. Johann Malfatti, uncle of the teenage Therese to whom Beethoven had proposed marriage years before. Mal Malfatti had been Beethoven's doctor for a time, before Beethoven dismissed him as a, quote, crafty Italian and quack. Now Beethoven had to be persuaded to accept Malfatti's treatment, and the doctor had to be mollified concerning the earlier insults he had been subjected to. Beethoven was very good at insulting people. Finally, Gerhardt recalled, Beethoven awaited Malfatti's visit as eagerly as the coming of the Messiah, once, when he was expecting Malfatti and Walruk showed up instead, Beethoven turned to the wall and barked, ass. In early December, he penned a letter to Franz Wegler in Bonn, finally replying to the old friend's nostalgic greeting of months before. I believe Franz Wegler was one of Beethoven's boyhood friends in Bonn. Beethoven began with elaborate regrets for his delay in writing, and all the things that he that had kept them separated, 
Beethoven says, Our drifting apart was due to the changes in our circumstances. Each of us had to pursue the purpose for which he was intended and endeavor to attain it. Yet the eternally unshakable and firm foundations of good principles continued to bind us strongly together. It was those Bonn-inspired principles he belabored Karl with, and they had turned back on him. He responded to Wegeler's query about the rumor that he was the son of the King of Prussia, and urged his friend to, quote, make known to the world the integrity of my parents, and especially of my mother. If Wegeler's son came to Vienna as planned, Beethoven said, I will be a friend and a father to him. It's a strange streak in Beethoven earlier in his life. I believe this is, if I'm remembering this correctly, he was trying to uh, uh, up his genealogy a bit and may have claimed that uh, he was the son of the King of Prussia and late in life came to uh, want to correct uh, a rumor that I'm pretty sure he started all by himself. Beethoven said he still had a silhouette of Lorcan, Wegeler's wife, whom Beethoven had loved so long ago. And he says, So you see how precious to me, even now, are all the dear, beloved memories of my youth. Beethoven reviewed his latest honors and initiatives, and he sent a portrait, and he sighed, I still hope to create a few great works, and then, like an old child, to finish my earthly course somewhere among kind people. And then he succumbed to nostalgia, saying, My beloved friend, you must be content with this letter for today. I need hardly tell you that I have been overcome by the remembrance of things past, and that many tears have been shed while this letter was being written. Still, we have now begun to correspond, and you will soon have another letter from me. Dr. Walruck observed that when the jaundice set in, Beethoven's decline proceeded with giant strides. He began to swell with edema, water building up in his abdomen from the effects of a deteriorating liver. Finally, Walruck told Beethoven he had to be drained, which was not a simple matter. A specialist was called in. While Johann, Karl, and Schindler watched, the doctor cut into his abdomen and inserted a tube. Water spurted out, 25 pounds of liquid, by Walrick's estimation, and an afterflow from the tube several times that much. It was all perfectly ghastly, but Beethoven felt immediately better, enough to make a joke, saying, Professor, you remind me of Moses striking the rock with his staff. At one point, the incision became infected, and gangrene was narrowly averted. Gerhardt discovered that Beethoven was being tormented with bedbugs and arranged to have his bedding changed. The edema continued, and three more tapping operations were performed over the next two months. The dreary weeks stretched on in similar wretched scenes. To pass the hours, Beethoven leafed through the Handel volumes, read Sir Walter Scott, and read Homer and other Greek and Romans, and made a pathetic attempt to finally learn the multiplication tables. He still, still wants to keep learning. 
The ongoing train of visitors paid their respects, suspecting that they were the final ones. There were few, if any, attempts at musical sketches. Beethoven's letters continued, mostly dictated to Karl and Schindler, a mixture of business, including the eternal corrections of proofs, and pleas for favors. He wrote to publisher Schott, asking for some Rhine or Moselle wine hard to find in Vienna. Schott was remarkably slow to see to this request. On February 18th, Beethoven wrote his old helper, Baron Schmenskal, crippled with gout, I do not despair. The most painful feature is the cessation of all activity. May heaven but grant you relief in your painful existence. Perhaps health is coming to both of us, and we shall meet again in friendly intimacy. Beethoven's hopefulness may have been due to a letter from Wegeler dated February 1st, in which his old friend gave his medical opinion that Beethoven would recover, and proposed that they meet in Carlsbad Spa to complete his recovery and then revisit Bonn together. If anything by then could have heartened Beethoven enough to spark a recovery, the thought of seeing his physical and spiritual homeland would have done it. Beethoven's anxiety about money never abated. Among the letters were ones in February to one-time protege Ignaz Moscheles and to the conductor George Smart in London, both letters pressing the recipients to get him a loan from the Philharmonic Society. On February 22nd, Schindler wrote to Moscheles, As the matter presently stands, as the matter presently stands with his illness, a recovery cannot be considered. Although he does not know this for sure, he already suspects it. Moshele surely conveyed that to the society, and the long-hoped-for Beethoven visit to London was never going to happen. Hope rose and fell, but the slide was inexorable. After the third tapping drained his abdomen, he was hauled out of bed and propped in a tub for a sweat bath. Instead of easing him, this treatment made him swell up again with water, and at the fourth tapping, the water from his belly soaked the bed and gushed across the floor. At that moment, Beethoven seemed to give up. Dr. Walruch told him he would feel better now, but Beethoven replied, quoting a line from Handel's Messiah, saying, My day's work is finished. If there were a physician who could help me, his name shall be called Wonderful. Then his spirits rose again. He was excited when the publisher Diabelli showed up to give him a framed picture of the humble cottage that Joseph Haydn was born in. Beethoven directed it to be hung on the wall near his bed and pointed it out to Gerhardt, saying, Look, I got this today. See this little house, and in it so great a man was born. The time for rivalry with his old teacher was, of course, past. Also hanging on the wall, as it had been for most of his adult life, was the portrait of grandfather Ludwig von Beethoven, whom he had hardly known, and who was still his model of a musician's life. On March 8th, the composer Johann Hummel 
turned up with his wife and young student, Ferdinand Hiller. Given what they had heard, they were astonished to find Beethoven sitting by the window in a long gray dressing gown and high boots. He was skin and bones, but he managed to stand and greet them. The two one-time rivals embraced warmly. They had long been on a du intimacy. They settled down to talk, Hummel writing in a conversation book. Since Hummel was now the court kapellmeister in Goethe's town of Weimar, Beethoven asked after the old poet's health. As for himself, after his long siege in, after his long siege in bed, Beethoven felt more bored than tragic, saying, I have lain about for four months already and one's, patient final, one's patience finally wears out. It is as if the pain meant nothing to him that only the inability to compose hurt. For Beethoven and for creators like him, not to work is barely to be alive. Virtually the only vacations he had ever taken from composing were when he was too sick to work. With Hummel he went on to his usual complaints, the Viennese, the government, saying, write a book full of penitential songs and dedicate it to the empress, and he said with a bitter laugh. He was, for the moment, with an old friend, more or less his usual self. That was the last respite. Hummel visited him three times more, each time the prospect sadder. The next time he found Beethoven in bed, groaning in pain. At the sight, Hummel was about to burst into tears, but he was shushed by piano-maker Johann Andreas Stryker. Yet Beethoven was still in control. He showed Hummel the picture of Haydn's birthplace, asked him to play in a benefit concert that Schindler was giving, and Hummel did, a week after Beethoven died. On the third visit, Beethoven whispered, I will probably be above soon. Was he finally convinced of immortality, or was he being metaphorical? Yet he went on to talk about visiting London when he was well. Hummel saw that Beethoven's eyes were dull, and he could barely sit up. On the last visit they found Beethoven lying and sighing and mute in a haze of sweat. As they sat with him, Hummel's wife took her handkerchief and wiped his brow, and Hiller never forgot the grateful look that Beethoven gave to her. Then hope again. A bank official arrived to announce that the Philharmonic Society was sending him 100 pounds sterling, equivalent to around a thousand florins. The official reported to Moscheles, it was heart-rending to see him, how he clasped his hands and almost dissolved in tears of joy and gratitude. I found poor Beethoven, in the saddest state, more like a skeleton than a living being. Malfatti gives him little hope. Beethoven roused himself to dictate a pitch to Moscheles, offering the Philharmonic Society a new overture or a tenth symphony, quote, sketches for which are already in my desk. He was still making wild promises, as he always had. In fact, by then the, the doctors had given up. Malfatti, like Walrick, convinced Beethoven, convinced that Beethoven was alcoholic, advised letting him have a frozen punch in moderation, along with administering stomach rubs with ice water. 
It was a gesture at making him happier, not at healing. For the moment it worked. After taking some punch, Beethoven became euphoric, writing Schiller, truly a miracle. Those very learned gentlemen have both been beaten, and it is only thanks to Malfatti's skill that my life is being saved. It is necessary that you should come to me this morning for a moment. Schindler himself had been ill or injured and absent, but Beethoven had chores for him to do, as always. Inspired by the punch, he began to joke again, to talk about writing the oratorio called Saul. His euphoria lasted only a couple of days. He overdid the punch, fell into violent vomiting and diarrhea that weakened him further. The condition of his body and his bed by this point is painful to imagine. As best he could, declining day by day, he kept dictating letters and signing papers. On Stefan von Breuning's advice, he added a codicil to his will, saying that until his maturity, Karl could draw interest on his inheritance, but not be able to touch the principal. Toward the end, Gerhard remembered his father, sitting on the bed, so on the bed beside a propped-up Beethoven, guiding his hand and signing document after document. At this point, Beethoven could not manage to sign his name fully intact. Around March 22nd, Dr. Walruch suggested to Beethoven that he allow a priest to administer the last rites. By then, he mostly lay in a stupor, staring emptily into space. But he extended his hand to Walruch and said, Let the priest be called. It was done. After the ceremony, Beethoven joked to the priest and said, I thank you, ghostly sir. You have brought me comfort and he dictated his last note to his old landlord, Baron Pascalati, and he says, How can I thank you sufficiently for that excellent champagne which has so greatly refreshed me and will continue to? I need nothing more for today, and I thank you for everything. Please note down what further result you achieve in respect of the wines, for I would gladly compensate you as much as my strength allows. I cannot write any more today. May heaven bless you in every way and reward you for your affectionate sympathy with your respect and suffering, Beethoven. That note was surely touched up from Beethoven's rambles by Schindler, or whoever wrote it down. The requested Rhine wines from Schott had still not arrived. He yearned to taste the vintages of his youth. The stupor deepened, yet he roused occasionally to mumble something about letters of thanks or proposals. But the great mind and seething imagination were still at work. On March 24th, he suddenly awoke and announced his own end by way of a formula that was used to conclude ancient Roman comedies. In what Gerhard von Brüning remembered as, quote, his favorite sarcastic humorous manner, as though to imply nothing can be done, Beethoven declaimed in Latin, Plaudite, amici, commedia finita est. Applaud, friends. The comedy is over. Later that day, the Rhine wines finally arrived from Schott. Schindler put the dozen bottles on the table beside the bed. 
Beethoven opened his eyes at the sight and whispered, Pity, pity, too late. He never spoke again. They gave him a few spoonfuls of the wine. Then he fell into coma and delirium. As Gerhardt and the others sat watching, the death rattle began. At times he rolled his eyes and beat his head on the pillow. Outside the sky was getting ominous, dark clouds gathering. The question of a grave arose. Gerhardt suggested that they look into the village of Wawring, where Stefan von Breuning's beloved first wife, Julie von Vering, was buried. Schindler and Stefan went to the graveyard there and found a spot near the Vering plot. For two days, Gerhardt, Schindler, Johann, Stefan, the servants, and a few visitors came and went, watching over Beethoven. All were stunned and anguished that he was lasting so long. His strong body and unimpaired lungs struggled titanically with approaching death, Gerhardt recalled. It was a terrible sight. On the afternoon of March 26th, a violent thunderstorm broke out, pelting Vienna with snow and hail. And Gerhardt wrote, Just as in the immortal Fifth Symphony and the everlasting Ninth, there are crashes that sound like a hammering on the portals of fate. So the heavens seemed to be using gigantic drums to signal the bitter blow they had just dealt the work, the world of art. At about 5.15 p.m. on March 26th, Gerhardt was called home to study, leaving in the room the young composer Anselm Hüttenbrenner and a woman whom Hüttenbrenner remembered as Frau, ba Frau von Beethoven, meaning Johanna, his uh, brother's wife, I believe. That Beethoven's most despised enemy, yes, his deceased brother's wife, Johanna, that Beethoven's most despised enemy attended his death would have been remarkable, but Hüttenbrenner probably remembered wrong. The woman was more likely Beethoven's maid, Sally. The circle around the deathbed had been counting days, and then hours. Now they counted minutes. At 5.45, lightning lit up the chamber, and there was a terrific clap of thunder. Suddenly, Beethoven jerked into life, opened his eyes, raised his clenched fist into the air, as if in defiance of it all, the whole mess of fate, the fickle gods, the worthless Viennese, and corrupt aristocracy, the whole damned comedy. His hand fell, his eyes half-closed. Hüttenbrenner had a hand under Beethoven's head, the other over his breast. He found no breath, no heartbeat. Shortly after, when Gerhardt, Stefan, and Schindler returned to the house, they were told it was over. Or so Hüttenbrenner reported the moment many years later. Brother Johann gave a different version saying Ludwig had died in his arms. Inevitably, history chose Hüttenbrenner's scene. His account is a death from myth, the last defiance of a demigod amid thunder and lightning. It may as well have happened that way as any other. What is certain is that Beethoven died the same death as any man, alone in his agony. 
but he was unafraid. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.